Once upon a time, there were a bunch of very, very religious folks. You may know some people like that. They worked very hard to follow all of the rules of their religion. They studied hard, so hard that they memorized page after page after page of every rule and regulation. Not only that, but they memorized the commentaries about the rules and the regulations. They looked at all the best teachers and could quote the best teachers. When disputing rules, they quoted teachers against teachers. They very carefully performed everything down to the very letter of the law. They dressed the right way. They avoided the wrong people. They showed up when they had to and even when they didn't have to. They even formed a little club and they all dressed alike and they all performed the same rituals together. These guys were good and everybody knew it. And so the people began to follow the best of the best. They longed to be as good as these people. They wanted to recite the rules like these guys. They worked hard to imitate their dress, their speech, their mannerisms, their looks even. And the following got to be quite sizable, and the very religious folks took notice. Somehow, when performing rituals, they always did them with the maximum audience, And they always seemed to get the best internships and in the best and most exclusive schools. They were popular. They had tons of followers. They were good. They knew it. And everybody else knew it. And surely, God must know it too. He must really love them. Well, one day, a newcomer came into this region. And he wasn't like these guys. He didn't dress exactly right or always show up on time all the time. He hung out with all the wrong people and seemed to actually enjoy their company. He wasn't as strict about the rules, but he seemed to keep them. He was sharp, though, and this is where the problem began. He could quote the rules just like these men and women, but he could also give the reasons behind the rules without quoting the best teachers. In fact, it kind of seemed like he actually knew the rule giver. He couldn't have, though, because he was young and he hadn't gone to the right schools, and actually no one knew who his teachers had been. Rumor had it that he was just a common laborer, a woodworker, or a stonemason. And all of a sudden, the people began to switch their allegiances. They began to stop following the very religious folks and began to hang on every word this woodworker said. And in fact, some of them gave up their very jobs and livelihood to follow him around. Well, the very religious guys, as you can tell, were less and less uh, excited about this. In fact, some might say they were ticked. And so they needed to do something. They got together. They even got together with some of their enemies. And with their clearly superior understanding of all the rules, they began to try to trick this woodworker into saying something that could be construed as possibly against the rules or sacrilegious or perhaps even get him in trouble with the law. And so one day, they did it in their capital, and there was a big crowd. And not only that, but some of their rivals got in on it too. Everybody wanted a piece of this guy. But somehow, some way, the woodworker got lucky and weaseled his way out of trouble. And finally, he said something like this. And of course, by now, most of you know who I'm talking about. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's a theme here. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Those are harsh words. And those are harsh words not for immoral, irreligious people. Those are harsh words for religious people. Rule keepers. In today's passage in Isaiah, I want you to notice what God says to those who outwardly seem to be doing everything right, which all too often describes and defines many of the people seated in this room. To those who kept the rules, pay attention, but look at how they don't actually know the rule giver. Let's look and see how they delighted in themselves and not in their God. Let's see how they valued appearances over reality. And let's resolve never to place religion about God before relationship with God. Let's say that again. Let's resolve never to place religion about God before relationship with God. Let's pray, because we're going to need some help, because this is going to step on some toes. Father, we thank you today for this passage. Um, As much as we may not like some of the implications, Lord, we uh, are sinners, and we sit in subjection to you, the Holy One, the Master, our Creator. So convict us of our sin this morning, Lord, for everyone in this room, believers to renewed fellowship with you, unbelievers, to new life. Help us to see you, God, as a loving Father. Uh, you, you love us enough to lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake, and you love us enough to discipline us when we need it. And thank you, Jesus, as we sang to you this morning, our great Redeemer and friend, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for awakening us to new life and giving us power for the hour and the needs of our days. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not there yet, you should be in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. We're going to get through 58 and 59 uh, today. They are certainly a unit. You will see all kinds of questions being answered uh, after they've been asked, sometimes even in the previous chapter. Uh, But we are going to talk about today right delight. Right delight, loving God from the inside out. Um, uh, Joshua read uh, the worship thought in your worship folder today um, uh, with all the verses about delighting in the law, delighting in God himself. And that's what we want to get at today. We want to get at not mere formalism, 
Uh, we don't want to uh, talk just about following and keeping the rules. We want to talk about how to delight in God, how our affections and our emotions and our logic and our knowledge and our wisdom can all point us to God. So point number one in your notes, false fasting mistakes ritual for relationship. False fasting mistakes ritual for relationship. And this is where our passage begins with talking about fasting. I'm not going to ask how many people have fasted because that would seem to go against Jesus' words in Matthew 6. But fasting is going without, normally in the Bible especially, going without food um, and sometimes without food and drink and sometimes without food and water. So let's read the first five verses of Isaiah 58 and follow along. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to Yahweh? Wow, (laughs) there is a lot going on here. And we need to remember the historical context of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet uh, at the end of the 8th century, so right around 700 B.C. Um, It was probably when this book was put together. Isaiah had a long ministry to the people of Judah and partially to the people of Israel. And in the second half of the book of Isaiah, you might remember we had um, kind of a narrative chunk in the middle that divided the book into two halves. And it seems like in the second half, primarily what Isaiah is doing is actually writing for people 150 years ahead of time when they will return from an exile. So Isaiah speaks to the children of Israel and the children of Judah at the time that he is prophesying, but he's also looking ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 and Nebuchadnezzar taking Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and a bumblebee all the way over to Babylon and a 70-year exile. And then when those Jewish people came back into the land, Isaiah is speaking primarily to these people. Now, of course, he wasn't just ignoring the people in front of him. He was speaking to them. Um, But his word was for them as well. And as we know, by reading the New Testament, this word is for us too, because uh, the Apostle Paul um, and Jesus himself appropriated some of these words into their own messages 700 years later. So, the very first thing that happens here in verse 1 is that Yahweh, the Lord, uh, commands Isaiah for the fun job. Tell people they're sinners. That's a good one, right? That's everyone's favorite job. Declare. And how is he supposed to declare it? Hey, guys, stop sinning. 
Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Isaiah was to make it very public that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were in sin. And he calls them, interestingly, in verse 1, the house of Jacob. Now, log that one away because that's going to come back uh, later on. But the house of Jacob. Jacob uh, was the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, a very important uh, figure in the book of Genesis. And, of course, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. His name was changed to Israel. He is the namesake of the nation. And it was here, the house of Jacob needs to have their sins declared to them. That is very interesting that he uses Jacob and not Israel. Um, the next two, the next verse, chapter, uh, verse 2, talks about this uh, seeming um, seeking of God. So it seems that there's like some kind of contradiction. Isaiah is supposed to tell the people that they're sinning, uh, except that now there's the sarcasm introduced. And you can see it in the way that they've translated it into the English, which is helpful. Um, and uh, the way I read it, I tried to read it in a way that would show that it is um, sarcasm. Um, because it's either sarcasm or it's contradictory. Did you notice that in verse, in verse 2? They are seeking me. Well, then why are we pointing out sin? Because they're not seeking me. And this is sarcasm to draw them out, to draw them in. Apparently, the children of Israel were seeking, verse 2, how often? When did they seek the Lord? Daily. Or day by day is the Hebrew. They were seeking him daily, every single day. There was not a day they went by that they weren't seeking. They were delighting to know his ways. And yet, we see the, the little um, hint for us, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. The, the picture here is of false delight. The people are, are actually practicing the ancient religion of the pagans that lived in the land before them. The Canaanites who lived in the land before the Israelites, they lived um, in a world where the gods and the goddesses controlled various aspects of nature and the heavens and the earth and the water and the crops. And so what you did in that kind of religion, in the Canaanite religion, is you manipulated the gods and goddesses to give you what you wanted. So your sacrifices and your dances and your rituals were all done, they were all performed in order to bring about blessing from the gods and the goddesses. So if you remember your Bible history, do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, which in two months I get to teach on Mount Carmel, which is super exciting. But on that, on that mountain, Elijah goes head to head with 450 prophets, with really terrible odds, he probably said, never tell me the odds. And then he went ahead and he went and went against the prophets of Baal and he defeated them. What were they doing in order to draw the fire down from heaven? They were cutting themselves. They were dancing. They were shouting. They were trying to manipulate their God into blasting the sacrifice with fire from heaven. They tried unsuccessfully. In fact, Elijah is so bold as to make fun of them and their God while they're doing it. And then you'll notice when Elijah does it, Elijah does not try to somehow manipulate Yahweh into doing this. In fact, what he says is, God, show yourself. Just show yourself to these people that you are the true God. Boom! <laughs> Fire from heaven. It is not ritualistic um, uh, tasks, performing them that God is looking for. He is looking for, look, righteousness. He is looking for them to follow the righteous judgment of God. 
And the people respond in verse 3. And you'll notice the disconnect, the misunderstanding, which is often our disconnect and our misunderstanding. But God, we're fasting. Look at all these good things we're doing. We're not just going to church. We're actually going above and beyond. We're doing rituals. We're fasting. We're denying ourselves food so that we can be good. I mean, so that we can worship you. You see how it centers on themselves? Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted? I mean, can you... (laughs) And you see it not. Which, by the way, did you notice that's calling God blind? (laughs) Or turning his his head away, his eyes away? Why have we humbled, humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? What a bold question to throw back at God. Which shows the, 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 utter, um, the utter blindness of the people. They don't see that they are the problem. And this is often our problem. But God, I'm doing everything you asked me to do. Why is there this problem in my life? Take it away. Why aren't you listening to me? Don't you know I know what's best for me? I mean, you know what's best for me, right? This is, this is what the, the ruts that we can get ourselves in. And God's going to answer not only in the next uh, part of the verse, but in the next two chapters, God answers their questions. But really quickly, let's talk about fasting. Um, Fasting uh, is a uh, discipline, a religious ritual that is practiced by lots and lots of religions. Um, It's not just uh, Judaism or Christianity. Um, But contrary to to probably what, what many of us might think, um, in the Old Testament, God only commanded one day of the year for a fast. In the law of God, there was one day that there was a commanded fast. One day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement when the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies um, and made sacrifice for the entire nation. On that day, and that day only, did God command his people to fast. One day out of a 360-day year, okay? Their year was a little bit different. 360 days, they had one day they had to fast. Do you know if you read the rest of the law, God commands one day of fasting. He commands weeks of feasting. Weeks of feasting. Like, he commands. You don't have any choice. You gotta come and party. Eat a lot of cattle. Make lots of sacrifices. Bring your whole family. Let's have a big feast, a big festival. Let's celebrate. Let's praise God. Let's sing. God prescribed it. He commanded them to delight. And he gave them reason to delight. And he gave them the actual like prescriptions. Like this is what you do in order to delight. So let, let's just get it really clear that, that the God of the Old Testament is not Oscar the Grouch. Okay. Um, he's not conceding to his people, okay, I guess you can have a few good times, but the rest of the time you've got to afflict yourself. No, this God is a God who commands one day of fasting every year and weeks of feasting only one day. You can see that in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, um, some good places to look, or Numbers 29. Now, there are times in the Old Testament where kings and leaders did call the nation to fast in times of national emergencies, in times of great national repentance, or in times of great sadness, individuals would do this. But God had prescribed one day. So what is going on here? The people are not following God's law and saying, why aren't you showing up? The people are instituting their own way of manipulating God and saying, why aren't you showing up? 
We did an extra fast. Look how good we are. One author said that they are doing self-affliction in order to get favors from God. So Canaanite religion is what they're practicing. Perform to pressure God or the gods. The true Israelite religion that God had given to them was response, not performance. Response to a great God. If you go back and read the book of Exodus, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, what state are the children of Israel in? Slavery. They've been in slavery for decades and decades and centuries. When does God give them his law? Does he give them the law and say, well, good job, guys. Now I'll rescue you from Egypt. What happens first? He rescues them from Egypt. And then he brings them out. They were slaves. They didn't have any self-determination. They didn't have any laws. They had to follow Egypt's laws. When they came out, they were a lawless bunch. And God gave them his law to define them as a nation. God gave them grace. And then he gave them rules and regulations. We flip this around sometimes and say, we've got to follow the rules and regulations and then God might give me grace. That's not grace. That's works. The kind of God that we see in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. Don't get this thing in your mind that our culture wants to throw at us, that there's a God of the New Testament and he's Jesus and he's kind and he's loving and he has a halo and he has shampoo in his hair and product and all kinds of stuff and he speaks in a British accent. But the God of the Old Testament, ah, he's mean. Those people haven't read their Bibles, really. They just haven't read them to see that, that the God of the Old Testament is full of grace and truth, and that is revealed most clearly in Jesus Christ. Okay, so God goes on to answer the people's questions. Where are you, God? How come you haven't taken any knowledge of us? And he says in verses 3b through 4 that the reason that they're fasting is so that they can oppress and hit and, and, and do social injustice. What in the world is that about? I think that some of this might have to do with, can you imagine, um, <laughs> can you imagine your whole family going without food and drink and being on great terms with one another over the course of a day or f- a few days? Ever heard of the term hangry? <laughs> this, this could very easily stem from this kind of thing. Well, we're going we're gonna to go without food, so God will answer our prayers, but we're not going to have a good attitude about it, doggone it. And if I'm a boss, I'm going to oppress all my workers, which we're going to see happens. Look at verse 4. You fast only to quarrel and to fight. That's the wrong reason, by the way. Look at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? And, and the picture there is uh, um, of not like an inner humility, but a picture of like actually physically humbling yourself, bowing down, afflicting yourself, performing religious ritual. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to Yahweh? Uh, the, the, the assumed answer is no, 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 no. You missed it. This is just ritual. You're missing the relationship. You're missing the relationship. One author called this empty externalism. Another one said mere formality. And I found this interesting from a Scottish pastor from the 1800s said, it is the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere except at home. I am a Christian. I am a good man. Look at me. I am very good. I follow the rules. And when this man gets home, He is not a Christian where it counts the most. D.L. Moody said this, 
many a professing Christian is a stumbling block because his worship is divided. On Sunday, he worships God. On weekdays, God has little or no place in his thoughts. And so Sunday becomes the day to make up for it, right? Whew, man, it's a bad week. I better get there on Sunday. God will like it that I'm there on Sunday. That'll be, that'll be good. That'll help me out. You know, if we're going to weigh the whoo, bad week. But hey, I sang. I even lifted my hands when I sang. That's worth more points. This is not what God calls us to. It's not what God called Israel to. It's not what God calls us to. And so point number two in your notes, we'll see what true fasting is. We've seen that false fasting is about ritual. But point number two, true fasting delights in helping others and praising God. True fasting delights in helping others and praising God. In verse 6, God answers his own question. He says, here's the fast that I choose. Here's the fast. And again, um, fasting is not necessarily um, only what God is speaking of here. God is speaking of anything that is done in order to reportedly get closer to God. Um, So any spiritual discipline that is used to um, get closer with God, to spend time with God, he says it should have results that are righteous. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? True fasting, real worship, true worship of God consists in fruit that shows itself to be righteous. So so we don't go, I'm going to fast to love God more and oppress my employees, Uh, oppress them, right? I'm I'm going to fast so I can be, I can show God how good I am, but I'm sure not going to let these fools get away with it. They got to work. I'm going to oppress them. I'm not going to treat them fairly. That's not, that doesn't have anything to do with God. I do my worship God thing over here and then I do my business thing separate from that. That's, that's not at all what God wants. God wants a holistic view of life. That we don't just, in, this, in their case, we don't just come to the temple and worship God, kind of slit the throat of the animal, do our little thing, sprinkle some blood, raise our hands, bow down, and leave the temple precincts and go back to being a jerk. He wants a heart change. A heart change is what is necessary. Uh, verses 8 and 9 show the consequences of what happens when we truly fast, when we truly worship God. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. The picture is one of the Exodus, where God led the children of Israel and then parked them and protected them. Right? Or even the crossing of the Red Sea. God leads them right to the sea. We can't cross this. God, what are you doing? Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. And then God, in the form of the cloud, moves behind the people. He's their rear guard as the Egyptian chariots bear down on them. He leads them, and then he protects them. And so the picture is, if you truly fast and you truly follow God, he's going to lead you, and then he's going to protect you. That doesn't necessarily, by the way, always mean physical um, uh, prospering, right? It doesn't necessarily always mean um, that nothing bad is going to happen to you, but that it means very specifically that God is for you, which means he knows better than you, and so he knows where he's leading you. God doesn't show up at the Red Sea and go, oh man, I got my GPS all mixed up. He brought them to the Red Sea on purpose, right? 
And it wasn't just to go, nah, 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 you don't know what you're doing, Israelites. It was to show them his grace and mercy and part the sea. He knows better than we do. He knows exactly why he has you where he has you. He's not surprised by your trials and your conflicts. He has you there for a reason. And he knows what's your best interest. You don't know your best interest. Now, as, as, as you um, gain wisdom in the Lord, you might sometimes know your best interest. You might sometimes see glimpses of it. But the minute we think we know better than God is the minute that we are in a bad, bad place. This is the God who is a rear guard. In verse 9, listen to this. Then you shall call, prayer, and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Echoes of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. The picture is, God's not going to hear your prayers when you're just throwing them up there to try to manipulate him. God will hear heartfelt, real, humble prayers, and he will answer. It, it, is, it is a good practice for us, when we feel like our prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down, it is a good practice to first check our own hearts before we question what God is doing. The assumption should never be, all right, God, what's going on? What's wrong? What are you doing? Come on, show up. I prayed, I asked for three days in a row and you didn't answer. By the way, how many years did Abraham wait for a son? 25? 25 years to wait for the son that God promised. God will be about his timing, not yours. How dare we demand of God. He then says in verses um, 9 and 10 and 11, more consequences and more uh, practices of those who are truly fasting, who are truly following God. They're going to pour themselves out for the hungry. They're going to free the captives. God will then guide. He will satisfy. He will make strong. He will be, you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What do you think that meant to a people who were in exile and were headed back across the desert to get back to their homes? You'll be like a watered garden. You'll be like a spring. Your ancient ruins, verse 12, shall be rebuilt. This is certainly literal, and I think also has some figurative meaning as well, but your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. These people were coming back. They were coming back from exile to the, 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 the land that God had given them. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. God is going to bring you back and set you up to prosper. Well, in verses 13 and 14, we then turn from fasting and the metaphor, well, the, I shouldn't say just metaphor, but um, God's using fasting, I think, to cover um, kind of the whole entire approach that we have in worship to God. And then he switches in verses 13 and 14 specifically to the Sabbath. Okay, and we've seen this. Pastor Ron talked about this a couple weeks ago, and we're going to see it even as we finish out the book, that the Sabbath continues to come back in a way that it wasn't talked about much in the earlier part of the book. So look at verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, um, <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I was like, turn back your foot. Turn Turn back your foot. What is, I, don't, I was trying to figure out the meaning of that phrase. Um, this may be sometimes where a dynamic translation of the Bible helps you understand what's, what's happening more. Um, but basically, one of the commentators said, it's basically like, watch your step. Okay, like, watch your step. Watch your step on the Sabbath. 
Think about your moves. Think about what you're doing. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. And by the way, if you, in the ESV, you see a little note there that that could be translated business. Doing your business on my holy day. God had set aside the Sabbath. Six days you should do your work. By the way, just like I did when I created the world. Six days you do your work. Seventh day is my day. My day. For you to refocus, to rest, to quit striving and working so that you can get it done and to trust in me. And if you call the Sabbath a delight, not a burden, God's, God's desire never ever was for people to get to Saturday in the Old Testament and go, oh man, I can't do anything fun today. It should be a delight. The holy day of Yahweh is honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, verse 14, then you shall take delight in Yahweh, in him, in God himself, you'll delight. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of who? Whom? Jacob who was mentioned back in verse 1. The the people of Jacob were in sin. They needed to have their sin pointed out. But here, ah, the children of Jacob will receive their heritage, the promise that God made to Jacob. How do we know this is going to come true? Last words, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. The picture here is of obedience and of remembering why God has done what he has done. The, the, the people in, in Isaiah's time, and we know the people in Jesus' time, had turned the Sabbath into a burden. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. You, put, you scribes, you put burdens on people's backs, and then you step back and you don't help them with them. Oh, you can't walk that far on, on the Sabbath. You can't eat that stuff on the Sabbath. And, and then Jesus, what does Jesus keep doing on the Sabbath? He keeps healing people. And they're so messed up in their thinking that they're ticked off that, that Jesus is making sick people well on the Sabbath. How dare he do that? What was the Sabbath for? Restrictions? The Sabbath was for rest, for taking delight in God. Is the man who's lame having some problems delighting in God on the Sabbath? Is he having trouble getting to the temple to worship God? Jesus, how dare you heal that man and make him whole? Because the Sabbath is about what? Wholeness. Jesus went again and again right at the Pharisees. In fact, there's, a, there's one time in the Gospels where Jesus is in the synagogue and he looks at the, the Pharisees. He looks at them and he says, is it okay for me to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus has them a bind, right? Because they're like, you know, that's not a popular thing. right? No, don't heal that, that sick man. That man with a shriveled hand, don't, don't heal him. He's fine. Do it on another day. Jesus looks at them and says, can I do this on the Sabbath? They don't answer. And he heals the man on the Sabbath, makes him whole. Which, by the way, is, is just totally a picture of what, of what God does in our lives. He makes us whole. He makes us complete. And he's working on us, and he's working on us. And someday we'll realize that fully. But this is what God does. God is not a, a mean uh, Zeus in the sky ready to throw thunderbolts at people that are having fun on the Sabbath. Stop that! Put your eyebrows down. Frowning is more acceptable on the Sabbath. What God wants from his people is delight. By the way, is God wise? 
Is he omniscient? Does he know the people that he created? Does the potter know the clay? So then when he gives them rules, does he know why he gives them rules and what they're for? Yeah. God's not capricious. He's not like the, the gods of the Greek and Norse myths, right? Eh, I'm just going to play around with these humans. <laughs> God's not doing that. God is working for his people's good. He's working for our good. We need to make sure that we see that worshiping God, showing up on Sunday, um, singing, giving, serving, all of the things that were shown in the New Testament, the one another's, loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, that all of these things are done not out of earning some kind of points with God, but out of gratefulness for God freeing us to be able to live the life that we're supposed to live. Now that is not easy, right? I'm not going to ask for raised hands on who had a crummy drive on the way to church. But I know it happened <laughs> to at least somebody this morning, right? No, or we were all in our car singing worship music to God saying, everything is good in my life. My kids are always obedient to me. I'm making as much money as I've wanted. There's no problems going on. I'm not sick. I haven't been sick. Yay, let's go to church. Maybe some days are like that. But I, I would imagine that more days are like, come on, let's get out the door. Let's go. We got to be there. What are people going to think if we walk in late? Stop it. People are going to look at us. What are, we here, what are we here for? What are we here to do? Now, I'm not saying let your kids run wild, you know, okay? But what I am saying is what are we here for? Why are we here? Because it's Sunday morning and my alarm went off and I woke up and I was like, oh, wow, it's Sunday. That's often the case, right? <laughs> what day is it? Okay, church. Okay, that does happen. But, but here's, here's the picture of what God wants. God wants us to delight in being here on Sunday. God wants us to delight in being his people, the messy people that we are, and to remember that God forgave us and so we can forgive one another. Let's move on to chapter 59. And uh, I got some bad news for you because it gets real dark here. <laughs> chapter 59, point three in your notes, sin separates and the results are devastating. Sin separates and the results are devastating. Look at how verses 1 and 2 go. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He's answering their question. Where are you, God? We're fasting. Aren't you listening? Wake up. Why aren't you? Can you not see us? Are you blind? Are you limited? The answer is no. (laughs) No, no. Hold on. Where's the blame lie? Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins, watch this, your sins have hidden his face. What's in the way? We're in the way. Our sin is in the way. Okay? This is, this is our innate fleshly desire to find it to be anybody else's fault but mine. It couldn't be my fault. It's got to be someone else's. It's mom or dad, the way they raise me, okay? It's my stupid boss, right? It's, all the, it's, it's something outside me. It couldn't be me. Couldn't, couldn't be me. God says, your sins have caused a separation. 
somewhere else in the Bible. I have no idea where this is. It just popped in my head. Right? It says God's holding out his hand all day to a stubborn, stiff-necked people. God is not the one. It's the short arm, right? Is your arm, is your hand can't save? No, God's reaching out to us. We're not reaching out to him. We must look for it in ourselves. Now, I want you to look at chapter 59. In verses 2 and 3, um, we have the second person plural. You and your God, your sins. Okay? In verses 4 through 8, it's third person. They, they, them, they. But in verse 9, notice the pronoun that's used. Therefore, justice is far from us. Us. First person plural. Isaiah includes himself in this. Let's, let's take a lesson away from this really quickly. Let's not be the people that are super good at pointing out everybody else's sin while not putting up the mirror in front of our own faces. In fact, let's put the mirror up first. I think Jesus said something about taking something out of your eye, right? Before you take out something from someone else's eye. I'm, I'm going to read an extended quote here that I thought was so helpful. Because this, this is, right, this is, we want to be Isaiah, the one God calls to tell everybody else what their problem is. But see, Isaiah doesn't do that. Remember in Isaiah 6? God, God calls, he's, he's in the throne room, and Isaiah goes, hey, what's up, Lord? I'll help. Is that what he does? No, I'm undone. I'm going to die. Why? Because I have unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, Isaiah includes himself with the sinners. He is part of the problem. So we don't exclude ourselves. Right? It's always someone else's fault. Listen to this. Unquestionably, the calling of a prophet was a spiritually dangerous one. It would have been easy becoming so intimately allied with the holy God and being aware of just how terrible the sin of the people was to consider oneself above such things. God speaks to me. I say, thus saith the Lord. But if the prophet was closely allied with God, he was also still inextricably part of his human community. Tragically, any member of that community, if left to himself or herself, is capable of the worst sins imaginable. Right? Who's the worst sinner you know? (laughs) You are. Right? I'm the worst sinner I know. You know why? Because I know what pops into my head. In fact, I know what I dwell on. I know what I want. That's where it starts. The mark of the truly great prophets was that they did not forget the latter, that they were part of the people, in their absorption in the former. Listen, don't get so close to God or close with God that you don't see yourself as a sinner still. Me and God are like this. Everyone else got to get their act together over here. See yourself among the sinners. Anyway, uh, verses 1 through 8 are the separation. Verses 1 through 8 are the separation, and it's just a litany of really, really bad, awful things. In fact, they're so bad and awful that Paul borrows from verses 7 and 8 in his lineup in Romans 3 of why all of humanity is sinful. Paul borrows some passages from right here to prove that Jews and Gentiles, all human beings, are totally depraved before God and are incapable of pleasing him. That's where he grabs it from, right here. This is a bad list. This is a really bad list. So their hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's just metaphorical. They're not really killing people. Okay, fine. Your lips have spoken lies. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> right? Your tongue mutters wickedness. I love that, mutters wickedness, right? Because you wouldn't be, out, you wouldn't be like, open with it, but you don't mind muttering about it. 
No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They, con- they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. And he seems to quote Proverbs, their feet run to evil. Right? The picture is, where's bad things happening? I want to be a part of it. I like evil. Oh, it's happening over there. Let's go. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 17. Watch this. Here we go. Now it gets personal. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Because see, I can always, I can always deny speaking something wrong. I can, I can, can kind of misdirect on that. Or I can say, well, I haven't kill, at least I haven't killed anybody, which by the way is a lame defense. Well, thank you. Please don't, right? Uh, but here's where we, we all get implicated, right? Your thoughts. Thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. I look at verse 8. The way of peace, they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This is bad news. This is really, really bad news. And verses 9 through 13 give the consequences of the separation. It, it, it tears apart the social fabric. There's no, there's no justice. There's no righteousness. They're groping for the walls like the blind. They can't even see. They're so far gone in their sin. They moan and moan like doves. They growl like bears. They hope for justice, but there is none. Verse 12 is pretty astonishing. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Not added. Right? This is simple math. I can still do this kind of math, right? Multiplied. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. One of the commentators said he's trying to exhaust the vocabulary of sin. He uses the three main words in the Hebrew vocabulary for sin there. Just in case anyone wanted to try to get it out, he covers the whole, all the bases. Okay? Sin, transgression, iniquity. This is bad. This is really bad. This is the consequences of turning from following God. And yet, as our God would have it, it is not the last word, because now, point number four, God is a gracious warrior who fights to save his people. And because of time, I just want to point out a few things here. Look at verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 14. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Boy, is that an apt word for today? Truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. Truth is lacking. This is the world we live in, and it's not new. It may seem a little more oppressive to us in America now, but this is the consequence of sin and separation. So, what happened? Well, remember when the children of Israel said, God, are you blind? Can you see us? The next words, Yahweh saw it. This is just like the book of Exodus. The people crying out because of their slavery, and the next words are, and Yahweh saw. He saw it. It displeased him. Okay, and then, and then it says, um, he wondered there was no one to intercede. It's not like God's like, well, where is everybody? Okay, it's an anthropomorphism. It's trying to help us understand um, how, how God relates to man. God does things in ways that we can't understand unless he relates to us in the ways that we do things. And so he says, then his own arm brought him salvation. Not that he needed to be saved, okay, but that he is going to save. And his righteousness upheld him. Look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Huh and a helmet of salvation on his head. What does that sound like? The armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. 
He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is an awesome passage. This is, the picture is of God in his war room, right? Opening the closet and there's his armor. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, or, or like if you don't, if you, if you can't picture that, like Batman, right? Walking in and opening and there's his suit, right? It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> bad dudes are going down. God is getting his armor on. He's getting his armor on to fight. And so um, this plays out in a very interesting way because we see that God wore the armor first and then Paul told us to put on God's armor. You see that? Isn't that cool? God puts on the armor and God fights for truth, justice, and Yahweh's way, not the American way, okay? And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. Put on God's armor. Your armor stinks. Don't put it on. It doesn't work very well, right? It's like David putting on Saul's armor, right? I can't fight like this. Put on God's armor. You'll put out all the arrows of the evil one. So God comes in. God graciously comes in as a warrior. He fights for his people's salvation. He renders wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Verse 19, So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, the east. Okay? For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. The picture is of God's sudden and majestic salvation. He is going to do something about it. He is not, as the Israelites had accused him, I'm going to stand idly by. He is going to act. And how is he going to act? Verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion. A redeemer will come to Zion. Zion, another word for Jerusalem. To those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. God is coming to save those who repent. So, I mean, here's the call. Like, if you don't repent, you're, you won't be saved. That was Jesus' first words in the book of Mark. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And the last kind of little, little epilogue here, verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit that is upon you, and the you is singular. And I think it's talking about the servant that we've been talking about for chapters and chapters and chapters. The servant of God. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. This is a promise of spirit and word to God's servant. And when we follow God's servant, we have the spirit and the word as well. You have some, uh, some what now, some application points there. Um, I'm not going to get into those. You can do those um, yourself. In fact, I left a few blanks so that you can think about what this means in your life. How do I follow God? How do I delight in him rightly? How do I delight in him? The psalmist says, Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. We have the opportunity to praise the God who's a warrior. He fights for us. He teaches us how to delight in him. He shows us the ways that we can do this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.